Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to be telling you about the disappearance of Joan Risch. Today I am sick, so I am drinking water. And I am drinking, I don't know what it is, it's some coffee from an international market nearby with some pumpkin oat milk. It's very yummy. Not my cup of coffee. Get it? Instead of my cup no, of it's tea. mine. <sighs> but it, it's here with me. <laughs> We just lost every single listener we've ever had. All right. So pour yourselves a cup of whatever you're drinking and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Today I'm going to be telling y'all about the disappearance of Joan Risch. Joan Risch has been missing since 1961 from Lincoln, Massachusetts. She was born in Brooklyn, New York on 1930, and her and her family actually moved to New Jersey when she was about nine years old. Her parents ended up passing away in a fire, and she went on to live with her aunt and uncle and ended up taking their last name. She was a pretty good kid. She, despite you know going through everything she went to, she had a pretty successful life. She went on to graduate from Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania in 1952 with an English literature degree. And then she got into publishing. She was a secretary at a publisher and eventually moved jobs to um, Thomas Y. Kralko, which I think was a publishing company as well. And while she was working there, she met Martin Risch. They ended up dating and eventually got married in 1956. And at this point, she decided to leave her job because they were wanting to start a family. They moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut, and in 1959 had their first kid. And this was a girl named Lillian. And then a year later, they had their next son. And a year later, they had their next child, David. Following this, they decided to move to Lincoln, Massachusetts. And this was in April of 1961. Although Joan wasn't working, she still was very involved in her community. She was an active member in the League of Women Voters, and she was very good friends with her neighbors. Everyone knew her, and she appeared to be a happy, well-adjusted woman and a great mom. Martin had began working at the Fitchburg Paper Company when they moved to Massachusetts. This brings us to October 24th, 1961. On the morning of this, day, Martin had actually had a work trip planned and he was going to be catching a flight in the morning to New York City. And his plan was to fly to New York City and stay overnight and then come back home the next day. Shortly after he left, Joan woke up and had a pretty normal routine, took care of her two kids, made them breakfast, got them ready for the day, and then had some air and she was also going to run. She was going to be going to a dentist appointment in town, and so she dropped the youngest off with her neighbor, Barbara. And then her and Lillian went off to 
the dentist appointment and to run some other errands. Following this, Joan got home around 11 in the morning and other people had witnessed her coming home and said she seemed to be fine, didn't seem like anything was out of place. And additionally, while she was gone, the postman and um, the milk delivery person had delivered mail and milk, two separate things, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Additionally, another person came by a dry cleaner around 11.15 and he was picking up some of Martin's suits to take to the dry cleaner. And again, nothing weird. Was it typical for them to have this many visitors early in the morning or I guess throughout the day? Apparently so. I mean, it sounds like they had a lot of delivery services going on. Uh, I can't speak to how often people got milk delivered. Seems like that would be maybe like a once a week thing, but that is not a question for me. The mail probably every day. I also was thinking about how nice it would be if somebody came and picked up my laundry and took it and did it and brought it back for me because then I wouldn't have this massive pile in our laundry room right now on the floor that I'm procrastinating doing. I think that there is a service that does that. It's like an app. Like not Uber Eats, but Uber Cleans. No, I have no idea what it's called, but something like that. <laughs> do you think they would do it for free, though? No. I also assume that the people that oh. were doing it for Joan and Martin were not doing it for free either. Follow-up question. Will you start paying for a laundry service for me? No. Oh, this is awkward. Mike, <laughs> please feel free to Venmo me. I would greatly appreciate it. Or if any of you all want to. Hey, spread the love, guys. Joan, when she got home, went and grabbed David from her neighbors and brought them back to make lunch for them and put David down for his nap, which is a usual thing for a young child. And at this point, Barbara, the neighbor, had um, brought her son over to Joan to kind of hang out with them. I'm guessing the kids just spend a lot of time together and they kind of go back and forth across the street is what I'm gathering from this story. And then later on, Joan ends up bringing the kids back over to Barbara and said that she would be back soon. Did she say where she was going or she just only said she'd be back soon? Just that she'd be back soon. I'm guessing some type of other errand is what she was getting at. But Barbara did not state that she said anything specific. I do believe, and I saw some kind of mixed reports about this, I'm pretty sure just Lillian and Barbara's son Douglas had gone back over to Barbara's during this time, not David, the youngest one who was having a nap. About 15 minutes after this, Barbara did see Joan come out of the home. She was wearing a trench coat and carrying something in her arms from her car to the garage and said that Joan looked kind of odd that she was walking really quickly maybe looked a little dazed but she just assumed it was nothing too weird maybe she was chasing after David something like that however unfortunately this would be the last time that we have confirmed that anybody saw Joan around 4 p.m. Lillian ended up running back over to her house and pretty much right after that she sprinted back to Barbara's and said Um, I can't find mom and there's red paint in the kitchen. And so Barbara is like, what? (laughs) And so she goes over there and sees a pretty, pretty bad sight. And additionally, she can hear David, the baby crying and he was found up in his crib. She goes back home and calls the police and pretty shortly thereafter, they show up. And what they find is that Joan is missing. And there's this, what was described as red paint kind of smeared around the kitchen. It ended up being type O blood, which does match Joan's blood type. 
Additionally, it appeared that the telephone had been ripped from the kitchen wall and thrown in a wastebasket. And the wastebasket was in a different spot as well. And some chairs were kind of scattered around. It, it looks like there's some type of weird struggle. Additionally, a telephone book was found opened and I saw that it was open to emergency numbers section. I'm not sure if phone books back then had like a specific section that like laid all this out. I don't know. That seems kind of weird to me, but it almost sounded like to me something that just kind of got misconstrued over the time. People saying the phone book was open to this, but it seems like it'd be unnecessary to have your phone book open to just call 911. Right? Unless it was a specific or, you know, like a poison control or something like that, I guess. Yeah, if they were specifically calling or maybe they're going. So 911 wasn't invented until a specific time, though. And I don't, I think 1961 is too early for 911. Mm. So there might have been a specific. Is it really? Not emergency. Or there might have been a specific emergency line that she would have needed to contact. Okay. I guess I didn't realize that. So 911 became the emergency number in 1968 oh so this was prior learn something new every day yeah so i so it's probably a local number yes and so maybe that would be why it was open to that section additionally they were able to find bloody thumbprint on the phone mount and two fingerprints and a partial palm print on the wall and they were not jones and they did not belong to joan Additionally, the blood was not centralized to the kitchen. It appeared that there was some type of trail that actually led to David's room and the kitchen, and additionally, some outside to the driveway, stopping near where Joan's car was. There were blood drops found on the hood and trunk of the car itself, but they weren't able to find any footprints, which is something that's noted as kind of odd. Investigators took kind of a I don't know the right way to phrase it, account an estimate of how much blood had been lost. And they said it appeared to be about a pint, which would definitely be life-threatening. Additionally, they said it did seem like somebody tried to clean it up. There were some paper towels and a pair of David's coveralls that appeared to have been used to try to clean up the blood off the floor. But at this point, they don't really know exactly what had happened. And they start to look around outside and the general area and they don't find anything. Authorities contact Martin and let him know what's going on and he ends up getting a flight back to Massachusetts and they're pretty quickly able to clear him of any involvement just for the simple fact that he had flown out and was literally gone when all this occurred. I feel like that's a pretty decent alibi however i think yeah. we've seen it before that it ends up not being a good alibi and somehow they're able to twist it but i'm glad that oh yeah in theory they went down the right path for this one you bet yeah and so they're kind of left going what what happened here and of course we're gonna get it quite a few theories but initially they i, I just think this is very silly to me but we've seen it before we'll see it again initially they're like maybe she committed suicide i'm willing to listen to why they think that but i'm not willing to agree with their theory no i honestly don't know why they thought that there was this kind of talk that oh well she's you know she's an at-home mom now and she wants to leave and start a new life so or she's depressed whether she committed suicide or she took off and kind of staged it 
And I don't know. I don't know why that's always like the immediate thought. This very clearly shouts to me that something happened and somebody probably attacked her. First off, if you commit suicide, I think we've discussed this before on here. If you commit suicide, you can't then after you die, hide your own body. So I think that'd be kind of hard to do. First question, at least not that we know of, but first question would be where'd her body go if she did commit suicide? Second thing that I think we need to probably talk about or look at is the fact that there's those other fingerprints and handprints on the wall that are proven not to be Joan. So where did that come from? Um, And I think the third question is why would she, why would anybody commit suicide? I guess, okay, so here's their theory. Joan committed suicide or was in the process of committing suicide, then decided to clean up the house a little bit while bleeding out to death just decided to scrub up a little and then proceeded to haul herself off somewhere and die in a place that wasn't anywhere near the house also she proceeded not to leave any footprints outside the house and she just poof magically gone whose idea was this that's very clearly what happened i don't know what your qualms are with it okay i'm sorry (laughs) Must be a personal thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they're, they think this and then they're, they went through that same thought process of, wait, this doesn't really make sense. Um, not to mention that it seemed very out of character for her to just leave her son in such a vulnerable position because he was upstairs. Um, she, from what everyone said, she was a, a very great mom and would have never done that. And they start, like I said earlier, they're looking around, they're not finding a lot, they're calling local hospitals, and they're not, they're just not getting anywhere. Additionally, something else they did find was that there were some empty beer bottles that Martin couldn't account for, which I thought was interesting too. It's, again, possibly pointing to somebody else being there. Now, here's something that authorities and a lot of people have looked into, and drawn conclusions and I was reading it and going oh gosh this is let me just let me tell you let me tell you so the few months handful of months leading up to this Joan liked to read and she would go to the library and check out books a lot of them had to do with murders or unexplained disappearances and people kind of latched onto this and thought maybe she was reading them because she wanted to fake her own death and take off. And I'm just thinking, dear Lord, if somebody looked at our search history and our what we watch and what we read. I don't understand. Also, yes, if somebody looked at our anything, um, they would think that we were doing the same thing. But committing a murder, not that I've done it, <laughs> is in committing suicide, once again, not that I've done it, is completely different than faking your own death so Mm -hmm. if she's reading books about these things happening faking your own death takes a lot more planning and just reading about somebody else committing murders is not going to be a great solid way to do this and also you introduced this episode as a missing persons case not as a murder which tells me that we don't have a body And so it's been since 1961 that her body has not been found. And I'm finding it real hard to believe that Miss Joan over here faked her own death or suicide or whatever 
and there's just nothing that's been found. I agree. I mean, I'll give credit to them actually exploring all avenues and doing their due diligence, trying to figure out what happened at least. It's definitely the opposite end of the spectrum from some of the other cases we talk about. But yeah, they that one got me. I was like, come on. I mean, unless there's something I don't know. Well, I feel like, I mean, it is them doing their due diligence, but I feel like it's also more of just a distraction from the case that's like actually going on. And that's true. So they're just focused on trying to figure out how she faked her own death because she read these books when they should be focused on the fact that there's actual evidence pointing to a true crime in this home. But they just want to explore all these random avenues. Mm hmm. I mean, and further, they start canvassing the area and talking to people and even more stuff comes up that is looking more like something or someone, I mean, attacked her. There was some neighbors that allegedly had seen this um, blue car that actually backed out of her driveway at some point in the afternoon around 3.15, 3.30. And then a couple people claim that they actually saw Joan walking on Route 128, which was nearby their house. Now, of course, who knows if it was actually her or not, but they there is some passerby. So one says that... They saw her walking down a highway median and saw this person that they saw look disoriented and had blood running down their legs and was holding something at their stomach. Not sure really why that... I don't know if they contacted authorities and they went and looked for the person and didn't find them or what, but that seems pretty concerning to see. It's definitely something that I would call in, but apparently nothing came of that. There is another road nearby called Trapello Road that some other people said somebody that looked like her or dress, was dressed like her was seen walking around seemingly disoriented as well. So it almost makes me feel like maybe somebody did come in the house and attack her and then she escaped and was walking around very confused and disoriented and then either fell because she was disoriented or the other person caught up to her. Now... I think it makes a lot of sense for her to exit the home because if she would have continued to fight in the home, then this individual could have gone after her son who was sleeping upstairs, but she like drew them away from her home. And so I almost feel mm-hmm. like it's that maternal instinct kicking in and she was just more thinking of protecting her son in that moment. Yeah. And to another point you said, apparently on this route, Route 128, there was some construction that was happening. And so there are theories that if she did get attacked and took off, maybe she fell into one of these construction sites and somehow her body got missed and something happened and she's buried there. For me, it seems like it wouldn't have been her just falling. It would have been the person hiding her body there if it were to that point. Like I said earlier, they did get some fingerprints and palm prints that didn't belong to her. And so... We talk a lot about cold cases getting solved later on by using new technology because back then they couldn't really run DNA on the blood. They could tell that it was type O and that Joan had that, but for all we know, it wasn't her blood. I'm guessing it probably was. That would be my assumption. But the fingerprints, at least, you know, maybe this is still a case that can get solved in the future. But unfortunately, as you've picked up on and as Erica picked up on, her disappearance has not been solved. Um, There's still not any more answers. 
something I did want to note, Martin, her husband, died in 2009. He never actually declared her as dead. And so it is still an open and active case in that sense, which I think shows how much he was devoted to finding out what happened, you know, because you can, in theory, be collecting life insurance if you do declare somebody as dead after a certain amount of time. And so that also makes him look even less suspicious. Hopefully with technology, we can get some answers. And at some point, somebody using the right entity with some money to look into it. Joan Carolyn Risch has been missing since October 24th, 1961 from Lincoln, Massachusetts. She was classified as endangered missing. She is a white female, was born August 4th, 1931, and she was 30 years at the time of her disappearance, 5'7", 120 pounds. When she went missing, she was last seen wearing a gray coat, a blouse, a sweater, and a charcoal-colored wool skirt, blue sneakers with white piping. She had a slim platinum wedding band with five diamond chips, and her shoes have been described as either blue high heels, flats, or sneakers. And if anybody has any information regarding her disappearance, you can reach out to the investigating agency, the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8111. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.